the compliance officer and the C-suites must take that complaint seriously. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. I am super, super excited to have part two of the Toomey case with my partner, Bart Daniel. As we learned in in the first episode, if you have not listened to the first episode, please listen to the first episode and then come to this episode. But, you know, Bart has had significant experience with respect to the Toomey case. And the Toomey case is a pinnacle case for healthcare regulatory attorneys. So I think the first thing I want to ask you, based upon the other questions that I asked in the first episode, is how did Toomey and the government arrive at a settlement of $72.4 million when I think the jury was $237 million? So it was a substantial difference. So how how did that come about, Bart? Yeah, well, by way of reminder in our discussion uh, and boots on the ground to me, part one, the hospital was a uh, rural hospital with a poor payroll mix and an underserved community of the state of South Carolina. And to me, just did not have $237 million. The hospital, quite frankly, was not worth $237 million. And interestingly enough, the the government had assured the hospital, both through me as counsel, but also in person, the assistant U.S. attorney met with the board. At one point in time, I asked him to, and he graciously accepted. He said several times during the, the question and answer period, he said, the government, the Department of Justice, has no intentions of putting this community hospital out of business. We understand the need for and find medical services that the hospital provides for the uh, Sumter area community. And we have no intention of doing that. And of course, at the end of the day, uh, that is just what they did. Because when that $237 million judgment was entered, uh, the hospital was either going completely out of business and shutting down or it had to come to peace with the government through through a sale because it had no other way to raise any money. So the question really becomes, how did we arrive at the figure of uh, the 72 million? 
well, <laughs> significantly, we really didn't do much, much any serious negotiation through that. By this time, that the government knew what Toomey was worth, and the government knew Toomey had to sell itself, and the government, uh, we kept the government informed uh, throughout the process, but we negotiated a sale, and Nelson Mullins was actually involved with that. Tom Morant, Nelson Mullins, did a wonderful job in uh, negotiating the sale and getting concessions from a uh, national uh, chain hospital uh, systems. And so Toomey became part of this national chain. Uh, and we'll, we can discuss later on what were your fears realized and when a big hospital gobbles up a small community hospital, did the services actually improve, which which certainly can happen. Uh, so, but that's that lesson is for the, the end of today's lesson, perhaps. So $72 million figure was what we had a willing buyer who was ready to pay for Toomey. And they began dealing with the government as a third party with us. Uh, at the table, and, and that's how the case ended up getting settled. Uh, again, Tom Moran at Nelson Mullins did a wonderful job of uh, bringing some concessions out of that hospital that the Toomey was selling itself to, and in terms of board members uh, on the big board and that type thing. So at, end, at the end of the day, it ultimately has worked out, but it, there was some, certainly some painful moments uh, through that transition process. Yeah, so the judgment was at a dollar amount where the hospital could not pay. And then the hospital was locked in. And, and this is an important point for community hospitals that are dealing with these issues that the government can actually force you into a settlement with a regional hospital system if they believe the regional hospital system is a system that can be relied upon. So why did they believe that the regional system could be relied upon? Well, I believe because that the regional uh, system had a good track record in terms of uh, medical services provided and also in, in their dealings, in the previous dealings with, with the government, uh, they had established a, a tra track record, and the government came to trust their counsel and to trust uh, the the uh, the management and the C suites uh, of that hospital system. Yeah. So, a lot of times with these cases, the C suite gets wiped out. From my experience, when I was in uh, South Bend, you know, the CEO, the CFO, the COO, they they lose their jobs during this transition. But if there's a transition into a different system, it's almost like an acquisition, correct? Yeah. Let me back up just a little bit, because uh, prior to the settle specific settlement discussions, we still had to deal, the hospitals still had to deal with the, they received a notice from uh, HHS, OIG, of the possibility of exclusion. And uh, we were invited up uh, to uh, Washington, D.C., to the Health and Human Services uh, buildings and offices. And we had to present our case on why the hospital should not be shut down. And, and, and of course, we feel like we did that. But one of the uh, things that really seemed to great concern to the government, great heartburn to the government, was that at that time, after the second trial, after the $237 million judgment, we still had the same law firm. We had the same 
chief executive officer. We had the same chief operating officer, uh, as well as they were really the entire C-suites. And when we went up to the OIG, I was there and our board chair uh, was with me along with another board member. And they were both flabbergasted at the attitude of the representatives for the Office of Inspector General and that the way that they talked to our board chair, who had been, who was a very successful private business person, and the other board member was a successful physician at Toomey, and she'd been on the board for a while, very well respected. Uh, they were and pretty much what was barked at us, and I'm being, when I say barked, I'm not being uh, too callous or too heavy on that term. What was barked to us and shouted at us is, look, you've got just $237 million contract. We told you the judgment. We told you repeatedly that the contracts are illegal. You nonetheless remained in the contracts until the very beginning of that second trial. And, you know, that, that, that is conduct we can't tolerate. Your CF is your CEO, your chief executive officer, is the same as before. It's now the same after the judgment. And the COO, the chief operating officer, is the same and the law firm is the same. You haven't gotten rid of anybody. So you haven't shown that you are worthy of getting any sort of consideration from us that the hospital should remain open. And when that happened, it was a seminal point, needless to say a turning point. And uh, the board chair and the board member that was there with the board chair, uh, we went to the airport to fly out and we had a private conversation. And that's when the chair uh, made it clear that there was going to have to be changes, drastic changes, changes that nobody wanted to make because people had great respect for the CEO who had done an incredible job at the hospital. The hospital was a thriving and pr produced at a very high level, particularly for a small community-based hospital in an underserved area with a poor, poor payer mix. Had just done incredibly great things in that community. But they had to go because OIG pretty much said, your life depends on it. And that's the kind of power they wield. Yep. Uh, and that's yep. what we were facing. Interestingly enough, the final figure arrived at 72.1 million, I believe it is. I ran out 72 million, was the, the final demand at the mediation uh, that I participated in before uh, the second trial. So that was the final. And, and at that point in time, I suggested to the board that you consult with financial experts to see what could the hospital pay. And that's when they consulted with the experts. One of the back then it was a big five accounting firms, and the accounting firm told them, "You cannot settle the case for seventy million dollars. You've got bonds outstanding on Wall Street. You've got a fiduciary responsibility uh, to those bondholders, and you would have you would be facing as individual board members as well as the hospital board. You would be facing lawsuits coming out from perhaps all over the country." but particularly from those Wall Street investors. Um, and that made the decision, quite frankly, one that was inevitable uh, for the hospital. So the hospital did not settle it, but it, it, that, that train kept going down the track and the, and the inevitable track, as I call it, and the inevitability did happen. As I discussed to you last time, when we went to negotiate with the assistant U.S. attorney, he came down from Raleigh to my office in Charleston, South Carolina, and we started, we began the discussions and he was a, he was just an honorable fellow to deal with. I really, we really had a close, good relationship, good, strong relationship after all these years. And 
I finally said to him, I said, it was Norman Acker. And I said, Norman, what you're telling me is that this case, this is right before the second trial, this case is bigger than Norman and Bart. Yep. This case is going to trial, isn't it? And he goes, yes. And at that point in time, we knew that the government was going to use to me as a poster child from that day forward. And we knew that they were going to they were going to publicize the case as much as possible. They did so before the trial and they did so again, needless to say, after the verdict and then the judgment of two thirty seven hundred and thirty three two hundred thirty seven million dollars was entered against the hospital. So why do you think the government was using the Toomey case as a poster child in, in the industry? We look at Toomey and we say that, wow, there's must have been some you know, major issues going on. And as the stark integrity people know that I represent hospitals primarily, some some of the times we're we're looking at things and it's not like it's a gross inducement for referrals. So why do you think that the government targeted to me for being like the poster child? The reason becomes pretty crystal clear. And that is, first, the government felt like that to me presented to it a true strong case as far as the facts were for stark violations. That's first and foremost. I think they felt like they had strong evidence of stark, stark violations. And then secondly, they felt like that case, the Toomey case, was, would be the perfect deterrent for other hospitals and other healthcare providers to be able to witness, those in the medical field. And in effect, when, when the Toomey uh, judgment uh, was publicized, I mean, it became, when it was entered, it became the shot heard around the medical services, the medical providers world. I mean, it really did. It reverberated. Yeah. People were following it from California to Hawaii to Alaska, uh, back to South Carolina, very closely. And, and, and I'm going to go, yeah, you know, and, I'm, and, I'm putting my air quotes that, you know, the Toomey case has been heavily, heavily emphasized for providers on, on what we need to do. So that's the reason why that Bart and I are talking about this, because this is where the government is heading. And and the other thing I, I would say this is all these years later, uh, Bob Captain Integrity, as you mentioned, we're still talking about it. <laughs> there's seven, there, I just got a notice the other day. There's another there's another seminar, another podcast that's going to be talking about Toomey and its aftermath and what yep. it means to start. And so here we are. <laughs> exactly. we, we, we're still dealing with the aftermath, the wake of the Toomey prosecutions. And, and do you have any idea about the impact of the Toomey case on the local service area? Yeah, and, and that's what I, I touched on just a few minutes ago when we opened. And, and that is this, you know, you really no one really knew what to expect. Of course, the, the hospital physicians and the hospital management uh, and its employees spread a doomsday doomsday situation should the hospital be acquired by one of the a regional provider or a national provider. It was, you know, the sky was going to fall. We were going to lose all of our services. And in effect, would be nothing more than a walk-in clinic. Well, that has not happened. It's, it's not been the perfect marriage or perfect situation uh, for those in the community, because obviously the regional provider 
uh, did choose to cut back on some services to provide, but significantly they kept many of the services and they did listen uh, and kept an open door policy and an open ear, uh, listening ear to the concerns the hospital physicians and um, and the hospital bo- former board members who now sat on the board of the large regional um, provider. So the, the the service is actually, if you talk to physicians, and I've talked, spoken to all of them, uh, and the transition, as you can imagine, was painful for the first year to 18 months. But once the dust settled, I think most people would agree that unlike what the, the dire consequences that the hospital and its management were painted for painting uh, of the result of being taken over. The results have been probably, if you had to say, a mixed bag, certainly a positive mixed bag, more than a negative one. Let's assume that I'm from a hospital in Iowa and I'm listening to this podcast. I understand the Tumi case. What are some of the issues that you would tell me that if I was a compliance officer or general counsel, what should I be looking for based upon your knowledge of the Toomey case? Yes, I think this first off, I've, I've represented every kind of healthcare provider. Uh, this has been my world. Uh, probably I would say I do white collar, uh, criminal and gov- defending government investigations, both civil, administrative and criminal. And, and, and in this case, I would say, that one of the things that you've seen throughout my practice when there's a whistleblower action, you see a disgruntled employee, many of whom, many of whom, regardless of what type of provider is, many of whom are poorly regarded. They're not good workers and good in good standing at, at the provider. There are people who are disgruntled. There are people who complain all the time. And they're just not, they're not this the square peg round hole. They don't fit nicely, neatly into working with others. Yet those are the very complaints you want to discount, you want to disregard, you want to ignore. You do so at your own peril. And that's what it happens over and over and over. And such was the case with Toomey. The, the, the complaining physician did not, you would play many of complaints against him that had nothing to do with any, with any of this Toomey case, the False Claims Act case. And so they paid little attention. They just felt like he was trying to sabotage their deal. And you've got to remember that the hospital was in a quandary. They were fighting for their very life. These specialists, the gastroenterologists, the ophthalmologists, the vascular surgeons, they, we had this competing ASC, Ambulatory Service Center, that was opening up. And those physicians were going to be enticed to go there and to be investors in that ASC. And if so, they would be received not only their professional fees, which they proceed when they provide services at Toomey, but they would also receive a share in the facility fees. That light, that's a light bulb to the hospital, an ambulatory service center, surgery center, which provides uh, ancillary services such as outpatient surgery, because those are all paying patients. And they offset much of the good work that the hospitals provide with a poor payor mix in the underserved community. Bart, this has been awesome. Awesome. I am super stoked about this episode because I, I think that this is where the rubber hits the road. So uh, do you have three Captain Integrity punch points that you can provide to us? 
Yes. I think first, when such a disgruntled employee makes allegations about noncompliance or some sort of problem that something might possibly be unlawful or unethical or wrong, that the compliance officer and the C-suites must take that complaint seriously. That, that, was, the, that was the first uh, captain integrity takeaway, I would say. And secondly, if the C-suites do not like the initial expert opinion on fair market value and commercial reasonless, do not seek a second more favorable opinion. Walk away. And walking away, as we know, can be the hardest thing in the world when a hospital is fighting for its life. But having two or three competing uh, financial analysis by competing firms is, is never a good thing. And I'd say I finally agree. with this, the provider, the hospital, or other provider should work with legal and financial professionals to structure a model that is compliant and be prepared to defend it in every aspect. And to me, work with the initial appraisal firm to construct a more compliant model is possible that they could have had the model then evaluated by a second expert to confirm it, but certainly not a second expert to give a completely different opinion that everything was okay uh, when it was not. Yep. And again, it's been totally awesome. So give the listeners your contact information because if you have a white collar issue, Bart is your guy. Okay. First of all, you can always go to the Nelson Mullins Law Firm website to get my contact information. The email is all lowercase. It's Bart, B-A-R-T, lowercase, dot, Daniel, D-A-N-I-E-L, no S, at nelsonmullins.com. That's N-E-L-S-O-N-M-U-L-L-I-N-S. And the telephone number, the direct dial, you can dial me directly, is 843-534-4123. That's 843-534-4123. And again, Bart, I've been super stoked about this two series episode. So thank you for being part of this podcast. Thank you for hosting me. I certainly appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity Punch Points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.